Tonight we're gonna be talking, uh, we're gonna go through a lot of scripture tonight. A lot of scripture because we're gonna be talking about prophecy. Not talking about prophecy like a lot of people usually think of prophecy. Uh, when I was growing up, I can remember that uh, I had a relative who was all into the whole Nostradamus thing. Y'all remember that Nostradamus thing? They would do documentaries and write books and all kind of stuff on Nostradamus and, and uh, all these prophecies. I, mean, I think he lived in the 1500s, something like that. First of all, Nostradamus was an occultist, and so you don't need to be messing around with Nostradamus stuff at all, okay? Just leave that stuff alone. Not only that, his prophecies were so vague that they could be applied to about anything anyway. I mean, you could wake up and say, I got the hiccups, and somebody say, Nostradamus predicted that, you know. They were just vague. They could be, they could be anything. Then. But there was, a big, uh, there was a big movement when I was young that, oh, man, what about this Nostradamus stuff? There's also a lot of biblical prophecy stuff that went on as well. You may have remembered hearing me say at one time that uh, when President Reagan was in office, if you don't remember, his name was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Each name had six letters in it, 666. And there'd be people who'd be like, do you think he could be the Antichrist? Because everything was about all the, all the prophetic stuff. And ever since like the 1800s, there's been a lot of emphasis on the whole prophecy deal and what's gonna happen in the end times. And there've been a lot of conferences about it. And then you, you know, it continued up into the 20th century. The Jesus movement happened in the 1970s. And that's right about the same time when you had Hal Lindsey writing Late Great Planet Earth and all the rest of that stuff. And um, I remember when we were gonna go into uh, the turn of the century, into 2000, there was all kinds of stuff about what's gonna happen in the year 2000, what's God saying, what, is the, what do biblical prophecies say about the year 2000? And it was Y2K, if y'all remember that, that it was just gonna devastate everything, the computers weren't gonna flip over and everything was just gonna shut down. Uh, I lived in Virginia at the time and there was a guy who lived a few doors down from me. He was all about Y2K, so he bought hundreds of gallons of kerosene because he was convinced he was going to do whatever, run whatever on kerosene. I mean, he, he was loading up all the time. So I'm sitting in my, in my apartment and when the clock struck 12 and nothing shut off, I just started busting out laughing out loud. And my wife was like, what are you laughing at? And I'm like, that dude's got all that kerosene and he's not gonna be able to do anything with it. But there was all kinds of stuff surrounding what does Y2K have to do with biblical prophecy and so forth. Can I just really encourage you with something? You know, in Acts chapter one, Jesus' disciples, he's about ready to be taken back up into heaven and uh, exalted, and his disciples say, hey, before you go, is this the time that you're gonna restore the kingdom to us and so forth? And Jesus says to them, you know what? Stop worrying about times and seasons and all the rest of that stuff. Instead, what he wanted was to have them be on mission and fill them with the Holy Spirit so that they could go out and minister in power. That's what he was about. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about prophecy. It doesn't mean that it's not in Scripture. But sometimes what can end up happening is we get so focused on the what and all the rest of that stuff that we miss out on the mission that we're supposed to be a part of. And we start reading Scripture in strange and interesting ways. Pastor Ken talks about it like this. There are people who read the book of Revelation with a this is that mentality. So you see a funky picture in the book of Revelation, you start thinking, man, could that be an Apache helicopter that John is talking about or whatever? Instead of a this is that mentality, looking for the little signs of stuff to happen, we should be focused in on Jesus and his mission for us. And it doesn't mean that prophecy isn't important. It does play a role, but sometimes we get things off kilter and out of whack just a little bit. And then we veer off and and, uh, and as Pastor Tim would say, we veer off because there's a certain part of prophecy that's mysterious 
And when we're always chasing the mysterious, we get ourselves chasing right outside of orthodoxy. We go in strange and interesting places. We want to just be focused in on Jesus, and when we do read prophecy, we want to read it in such a way that we got God's lenses on, and it's meaningful to us, and we stay focused on who he is and what his mission for us is. But tonight, we are going to focus in a little bit on prophecy, and we're going to focus in on Old Testament prophecy especially. And uh, there is a passage, and actually Luke chapter 24, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture because it's so interesting. It's one of those moments I wish that I could go back and be a part of. Because you have these two followers of Jesus. One's named Cleopas, and the other one is not really named at all, and they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now Jesus has been crucified, buried, and resurrected. But that was really a traumatic experience for the followers of Jesus, and so they were, their heads were spinning. What just happened? We thought everything was gonna go in one direction. Next thing we know, he's being, he's being crucified. He was buried. Some people have seen him, and, but there was all kinds of confusion, and they were just all in a flux. And so these two guys are walking. It's about a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and at some point, the resurrected, risen Jesus intersects with them, and he decides he's gonna walk with them. They have no idea it's Jesus. And they're walking along, and he can tell they're upset, so he's asking, why are you so upset about stuff? So they start laying out for him, are you the only one who doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem? Don't you know about you know, Jesus who was crucified, and all of this stuff happened, and they recount the story to him, and I love Jesus. This is the, t- this is the day, this should be entitled, The Day Jesus Punked His Disciples. That's what the title of that passage of scripture should be. Pastor Jeremiah's got the best sermon title ever, but I'm not gonna say it. Someday he'll preach it. And when he does, you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the best sermon title ever. But this is the day Jesus punked his own disciples because he knows what happened because it's him walking along with him. So they tell him the story and then finally he says this to them in verse 25 of Luke 24. He says, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It goes on, and eventually he sits down to have dinner with them. He breaks the bread. They realize it's him. He disappears. Well, you read this passage of scripture. I wish I could be there because I want to hear that sermon. I want that Bible study. What did Jesus say to them? Where did he go? And I can predict some of the places that he would have gone, but I would love to have heard it come from his voice for him to preach that message because Jesus is all through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. We have this deal where we sometimes feel like we got the Old Testament, we got the New Testament. There are a few similarities, but they feel like different books and so forth. But we read about Jesus because he's mentioned so explicitly there and everything in the New Testament is openly about Jesus, but he's all through the Old Testament as well. As a matter of fact, there are all these prophecies about him. There are actually over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus that he fulfills. Pastor Ken and I were talking about this today and he said to me, he said, for just four of them, now you correct me if I'm wrong, this is the one time you get to correct me in public. So he said, if just four of those prophecies were to be fulfilled, it would be like you would take half dollars, silver dollar coins, two feet deep, cover the entire state of Texas. One of them you mark red, and it's in there somewhere, and you blindfold yourself and go in and pick that one red one out. That's the odd. The odds of that happening are about the same odds as four of those being confirmed and fulfilled by Jesus. Now, just imagine 
over 300 prophecies that he fulfills. That's beyond impossible. That is only explainable by God himself doing this. Over 300 prophecies about Jesus. But the way that these prophecies work sometimes are a little bit unusual. If you're new to scripture, uh, and you're new, particularly you read the Old Testament, it can be a little bit difficult. There's, there are things that are going on that feel so distant from us. Talking about the people of Israel, and you got genealogies and all of this stuff going. There's a lot of poetry and so forth. And sprinkled in, there are 300 plus prophecies about Jesus, but they function sometimes in an interesting way. But as it's easy, easy for us to read the scriptures and act like they're being written directly to us. We might read a scripture about something and think that's a great prophecy that's directed at our day, but actually the prophecies actually had meaning for the people, the first hearers who heard them. The prophecies weren't just we're gonna speak to the 21st century and the rest of the people that are here right now have no idea what we're talking about. The scriptures don't really mean anything to them. They did mean something to them. But the way that Old Testament prophecy sometimes worked was that prophecies can have both a near and a distant application. So there can be an immediate application to the original listeners. It can really mean something intensely to them, but there's something down the road that's gonna be coming into application as well. And sometimes that down the road was a good ways down the road. But I wanna give you just a few examples before we get into Christmas in the Old Testament. So, for example, in the 300 plus prophecies about Jesus, it talks about the crucifixion. There's Psalm 22. I'm gonna read from verse 16 here. Psalm 22 says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. Now, Psalm 22 was written by King David himself. Maybe it was when he was experiencing trying times at the hands of King Saul before David had become king because Saul had tried to kill him on more than one occasion. Whatever's going on, David is writing this psalm and it's meaningful to him right where he was at that point in time. Later on, it would be used by God's people, the Israelites, as a prayer that they would pray when they were in exile because there's such intense, intense suffering that's going on in Psalm 22. But it would ultimately be fulfilled by Jesus in the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, Psalm 22 begins with the famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what Jesus was doing when he said that? He wasn't trying to emphasize the Father forsaken him. What he was doing was he knew that every Jewish religious leader had almost the entire Old Testament memorized. They would have had Psalm 22 completely memorized. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was saying was, I want you to remember Psalm 22. I'm the Messiah. This stuff is happening in front of you right here, right now. Jesus actually quotes that psalm. But then later in Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, at the cross, here's what the scripture says. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Just that little thing right there, way back in Psalm 22, that little detail was prophesied about the crucifixion, not to mention about the suffering, uh, that he's surrounded by a pack of dogs, the piercing of the hands and the feet, the enemy staring and gloating. That's exactly what happened at the cross, the dividing of the garments, all of those details happened. 
There was an immediate application for David and even for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but there was something prophetic going on that would only be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus himself. That's just one example. Here's another one. Another one that deals with the crucifixion, Isaiah 53, and these words are very familiar to probably every one of us. It says, he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now in its immediate context, Isaiah 53 right there, the people of Israel actually thought they were the suffering servant. They were the ones suffering here because they went into exile and when they read these words from Isaiah, they're like, yes, that's us. It meant something to them in the here and the now for them. But it was ultimately applied and fulfilled in Jesus. He was the ultimate suffering servant. And it even gets quoted in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, when it writes and says, Evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word, healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. The words way back in Isaiah 53 are applied to Jesus because it was a prophetic looking forward to what Jesus would do. It's also referenced in 1 Peter. That's not up here on the screen, but it says, Peter's writing and, and quotes this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. You were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There are all kinds of scriptures in the Old Testament, and sometimes they're just like little breadcrumbs here and there. There are passages that are so very clear, and they're even repeated in the New Testament, and then there are other times when there's a passage about Jesus, and it's just like a little breadcrumb that gets dropped, and it maybe has no meaning when you're reading it initially, but then you get to the New Testament and realize, wait a minute, that thing back there was talking about Jesus, and it seemed like a throwaway line, but it wasn't. It was one of those 300 plus prophecies. So what you saw there in those crucifixion accounts and so forth, that happens over 300 times in the Old Testament and Jesus fulfills all of those prophecies. So what about Christmas in the Old Testament? Yes, Christmas is in the Old Testament. And there's some places that you can think of, uh, there's a few of them that are really obvious and that really stand out. First of all, there's Jesus's virgin birth. In Isaiah chapter seven, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now let me tell you what's going on here in Isaiah chapter seven. What's interesting is that the stuff that's going on in the Old Testament sometimes is so far removed from something messianic. You think, how in the world can you get Jesus out of that? but God was actually speaking of Jesus. So here's what's happening. If you know the history of Israel at all, 
you'll know that it started out with their first king. He was Saul. He was not a good king. Didn't live up to the calling that God had for him. He loses the throne. David becomes king, greatest king that Israel ever had. But eventually, David has to pass it on and so forth. And eventually, the kingdom splits because the leadership just kept declining. The kingdom splits. You had the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. So you had two different kingdoms. And there came a point in time when Israel was gonna get into an alliance with Syria and they were gonna come against the kingdom of Judah. So you got a little war thing that's going on. That's the context of Isaiah chapter seven right here. And so what happens is the king of Judah, he's like, oh, this is not good. I don't want this to happen at all. And Isaiah gets a word from the Lord and says, listen, he says to the king of Judah, listen, this is not gonna happen. It's not gonna work. They're not gonna come against you. It is not gonna happen. As a matter of fact, not only is it not gonna happen, within 65, 60 or 65 years of right now, that kingdom is gonna be in complete disarray. Not only will it not happen, they're not even gonna be able to stay together as a nation. And you know what? Ask God for a sign. And if you wanna ask him for a sign, ask him for a miraculous sign to confirm to you that this is gonna happen. But the king's like, I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna offend God. So here's what happens. Now where they are is God told Isaiah to give this prophecy where everybody washed their clothes. So there's all kinds of people around. The royal court is probably around. And Isaiah's young wife is also standing there. And this is probably what happened because of some things that I'll tell you in just a moment. But they're standing in front of all these people. Isaiah gives this prophecy. The king says, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. So then Isaiah says, fine. God's gonna give you a sign anyway. And he points to his wife and he says, this young woman, this young virgin will conceive and she's gonna give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And what happens in, that was chapter seven, what happens in chapter eight, verse three, Isaiah has marital relations with his wife who is a prophetess. She also has a prophetic gift. They get pregnant. She gives birth to a son. She gives him this long, long name that I'm not gonna pronounce even if I'm reading it, I couldn't. They give him this name and it's got this unique meaning and then God speaks to Isaiah and says, before this kid can say mom or dad, Israel's gonna be done. That's gonna be your sign. For Israel, in that context, God with them, Emmanuel, was Israel, the northern kingdom, they're gonna fall apart, you are gonna conquer them. That's what God with them meant in that moment. But the scriptures apply it ultimately to Jesus, for him ultimately being with us, walking among his people, filling us with the power of his spirit. He would not just be God with us in flesh, he would be God inside of us, Emmanuel, God inside of us. And we're gonna talk more about in this series about what Emmanuel means down the road a little bit and the significance to us. That's what it meant. That was the context in Isaiah chapter seven. But if you go to Matthew chapter one, it says this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered it, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God had Christmas in mind in Isaiah chapter seven when the king needs a sign from God that he's gonna do okay in a military confrontation. And that line, they probably had no idea had anything to do with the ultimate Messiah who was to come. But way back in Isaiah, God himself had Christmas night in mind. And then in Isaiah chapter nine, I'm not gonna spend much time on this, and the reason I'm not is because it's not quoted in the New Testament, but it is applicable to Jesus. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The birth of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, predicted in the Old Testament, in an unusual place, but divinely placed by God nonetheless. And why a virgin birth? A virgin birth because if Jesus was just the product of a human man and a human woman, then he would show up on the scene and say, I'm the Messiah, and everybody would be able, and I think rightfully be able to say, no, you're not, you're just a human like everyone else. There's nothing special about you, but right from the beginning, it would be that God the Father would be his father. He did not have a human father. He had a divine father and it set him apart from everyone else. There's nobody else who could be the Messiah because they would all just be born of sinful and perfect people but Jesus. Impregnated, Mary impregnated by the Holy Spirit divinely so that no one could say you are just like everyone else. They tried sometimes, but no one would be able to say that with any measure of credibility. His virgin birth, the Christmas virgin birth is predicted. Here's another thing that's predicted, Jesus' birthplace. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is probably the name of a prominent clan uh, in the area of Bethlehem. It's like if the Watts family was prominent, which we are not prominent at all. But if the Watts family was prominent, you might say, hey, we're gonna head over on, you know, to Wattsville or whatever. It just became shorthand for, for the city there, Bethlehem. I think man should start a town, Wattsville. Yes, come on. And its town colors will be maize and blue. Glory to God, yes. So, why y'all wanna just diss someone when I'm reading the scripture? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah was written in a time of great national distress. And in that context, there's the awaiting of an earthly ruler, an earthly king who's gonna come and help bring good leadership that will, will bring about peace in the, in the land. But ultimately, the ruler that's being talked about isn't an earthly king, it's a divine king. It's Jesus, Matthew chapter two, verse one. And this is, I'm gonna read just a little chunk because I want you to get the whole flavor of it. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. But when King Herod heard it, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him When he had called together all the people's chief priests, that's the religious leaders, when he called them all together, he asked them, where's the Messiah gonna be born? In Bethlehem in Judea. Think about this. The the Jewish religious leaders already knew where the Messiah was gonna come from. 
They had already applied Micah 5 to, to the Messiah, knowing that's where he would be born. So they say, Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus' birthplace is predicted. And why, I love his birthplace. Why Bethlehem? You know what the word Bethlehem means? Bet means house. Lechem means bread. The house of bread. Who's the one who said he's the bread from heaven? Who's the one who said he was the bread of life? Who's the one at the Last Supper that breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples and says, this is my body given for you? It's the one who was born in the house of bread. Jesus himself predicted that he would be born in this little tiny place, Bethlehem, predicted in the Old Testament. Here's another, here's another slice of Christmas in the Old Testament. Jesus coming back from Egypt. There are other things in there too. Like you remember Jesus, Herod wanted to kill all of these children because he wanted to wipe out Jesus because he didn't know which one was the Messiah, but he knew one of the kids, ages two and under is the Messiah, so I'm just gonna wipe out all of these kids. And there's even prophetic stuff about that, that that would actually happen. Uh, it's not, it doesn't feel very Christmassy though to me. So it technically happened, but that kind of takes my joy away a little bit. So just know that it's there. Let's go on to happy stuff. So Jesus returns. So Jesus has to flee because he doesn't want, they don't want to be killed by Herod. But then he's got to, at some point, come back from Egypt, and he does. But here's where you see it in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is such a strange place for a prophetic word to be. Because if you know the book of Hosea, Hosea is about Israel's disobedience. The picture is of God as a husband, Israel as a wife, and Israel is constantly being faithless to her husband. And some of the language in the, in the Hebrew is actually very sexually graphic about what a faithless wife is like, and that's how Israel is being toward God. And this verse right here is actually talking about Israel being called out of Egypt because they had been enslaved, and even when they get out of being enslaved, they still disobey. They still disbelieve. That's where those words come from. It's this passage that's talking about Israel disappointing God, and here's this line that you think is a throwaway right at the beginning of it, but it's not. It is actually a little prophetic word about what's gonna happen with the Messiah years and years down the road. In Matthew 2, 14 and 15, it says, Joseph left for Egypt with a child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Is it not amazing? The little lines that you see in the Old Testament, the little things that God has peppered in the Old Testament to show you, hey, there's someone coming. Jesus is the center of this. There's someone coming down the road and there's gonna be a line here. There's gonna be a line there. And there's gonna be all of these references to him being born and what his childhood is gonna be like. Is Christmas in the Old Testament? Absolutely Christmas is in the Old Testament. It's not Christmas with trees and all the rest of the stuff that we have, but Christmas is in the Old Testament because all of the Old Testament was looking forward to the day when that Christmas night would happen. All the Old Testament was looking forward to the day when Messiah would become incarnate in human flesh. And he would grow up and do so much more, but that was the goal of the Old Testament saying, there's Messiah coming and on Christmas night, that was fulfilled. And a bunch of other prophecies would be fulfilled after that. So why are these prophecies important to us today? 
So you say, it's great that there are all these prophecies about Jesus, but what importance does that have for us today? I'm in 21st century America. What difference does it make to me? I'm glad they happened, glad for Jesus, glad for Christmas, all of that stuff, but what difference does it really make to me? How should it change the way I think about scripture or about spirituality? I just wanna give you a few things that are important about why we should focus in on this and what difference it makes. First of all, fulfilled prophecies show that the Bible is a single unified story. A single unified story. Here's the challenge. We read the Bible through Western American eyes. We read the Bible centered on our story. And we can't help it. I think every culture, every place kind of reads the scriptures through their lens. So it's understandable. It's not like people are trying to pervert anything, but it's just natural. But you add on top of that, living in the country that's the most affluent country in the world, with the strongest military, where the language everybody wants to learn because it's the language of commerce, everything, at least in our time, centers around this land, but the Bible wasn't written in 21st century Western America. Jesus was not a 21st century Western American. He was a Middle Eastern Jew. And listen, I love my country. There is no better country, no other place I would rather live. Try to pick a better country. You cannot, to my mind. If you came from another place and you love your homeland, that's wonderful. You, you feel the same way. You would, you would love that. There's nothing wrong with loving your country, but there is something wrong when we get so much centered on our story that we begin to read Scripture only through the lens that we have. That's not the lens that, that Scripture is written through. It is a, we are a blessed country, but it's not an American Jesus. It's, it's the Middle Eastern Jesus with his ancient Near Eastern agenda. What Jesus is doing is this. He is fulfilling Israel's prophetic history. You know what Israel was called to do? They were called ultimately to call the nations to Yahweh. That was their job. They weren't selected by God because they were more powerful or smarter or God had some kind of ethnic prejudice and he thought that the Jewish people were better than everyone else. None of that stuff is true. He picks this very small group of people, gives them a very small place of land, and he says, I want you to represent me, Yahweh, to the rest of the world. That was their job. They didn't do very well at it, but that was their calling. But you know what the ultimate thing was? They were gonna be the people who would give the world the Messiah. Israel gave the world the greatest Christmas gift ever. That was Jesus. That's what their calling was. And the story of Scripture is about that. The story of Scripture is about Jesus being the center of it. He's the focal point of all of Scripture. What he's doing is he's fulfilling the prophetic history of Israel, and when he comes on the scene and does what he does, it's a fulfillment of all of those books you see in the Old Testament, and he carries it on. He's fulfilling their story, and ultimately doing what they couldn't do by welcoming all the world in. It is one unified biblical story. That's one reason why those prophecies are so important. It isn't Old Testament that was then, but New Testament this is now. It is one story that fits together and Jesus is the star of the story. And here's the second thing that, that is helpful to us. You read those passages, and we just looked at a few. You read those prophetic scriptures about Jesus. Fulfilled prophecies confirm that only Jesus could be the Messiah. Are we already talking about how the odds are impossible 
that someone could fulfill over 300 prophecies. And the truth is, is that false messiahs try to fool people all the time. You might think, well, why, is, why are these prophecies important? Because they narrow things down to Jesus. Because if they didn't narrow things down to Jesus, then we get people who show up and say, hey, I'm the Messiah, let's all move to Waco, I'm in charge. You know, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google, okay? Just Google. Or you get, hey, you know, I'm the Messiah, everybody come with me, we're gonna catch a, a comet when it passes by the earth, so when it gets close, we're gonna drink a bunch of poison, all the guys are gonna castrate themselves, we're gonna drink a bunch of poison, and off we're gonna go to join the comet. That really happened. That's what happens when people think that they can jump into Messiahhood. As a matter of fact, it actually happened in the New Testament era. Uh, in Acts chapter five, there are two guys who are mentioned. And I was talking with, I'm calling you out again, Pastor Ken, I'm sorry. I was talking with Pastor Ken the other day. He said, who? There are two names that you read over and you never think about. The disciples are being harassed by the religious leaders and they want to kill him, but Gamaliel, who's a very wise Pharisee, pulls him back and says, listen, don't do this, don't do this. You need to be very careful about what you're doing here because if it's not of God, God will take care of it, but if it is of God, you're going to be fighting against him. And then he mentions these two guys. One of them's name was Judas. The other's name was Theodos. And it doesn't really give too much detail. It gives a little bit of stuff. But let me tell you a bit about Judas. What Judas did, this is not Judas who betrayed Jesus. This is a different Judas. What Judas did was he gathered a bunch of people to himself and he, it was a little uh, religious sect. It was kind of Christian-y, kind of not Christian-y and he thought he was gonna take on Rome, which if you know anything about Rome, it was not gonna work. And so he issued a rebellion against Rome. They came, they killed him. All of his, his uh, followers got scattered. That was the end of Judas. Theodos was a little different story. Theodos had about 400 people or so that he got to follow him and he declared himself to be some kind of a Messiah. And he said, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna part the Jordan River. So Theodos goes to the Jordan River. All of his followers are there with him. He says to the river, part, nothing happens. The Romans say, nice try. They take Theodos away. He gets beheaded. All of his followers get arrested. Oops, you're not the Messiah. Okay. Only one person could fulfill the role of Messiah. And there are false prophets and false messiahs and people who come along, and it's always been that way. As a matter of fact, there's a point in scripture where Jesus says, if somebody tells you, come out into the wilderness, we found the Messiah, here he is, don't believe them. Don't believe them at all, because there are gonna be people who try to come, they're gonna try to take my role, they're gonna try to usurp my role, but there's only one person who could fulfill that role, and that was Jesus himself. As a matter of fact, even that was prophesied. Back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, Moses is speaking these words, and he knows he's gonna pass off the scene at some point in time, so he issues these words, but when he's talking, he's not just talking about something at his point in time in history. He's looking down the road prophetically. He says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Well, this is what is asked of the Lord your God, at, what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, we don't wanna hear God's voice. We don't wanna see this great fire anymore or we will die. So the Lord said to me, what they say is good, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. 
Uh, he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who doesn't listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now, in the immediate context where Moses speaks it, he's saying this, okay, God's gonna raise up somebody else. His name's probably gonna be Joshua here. He's gonna lead your people, and I'm gonna put my words in his mouth, and they better listen to him. In the immediate context, that's what Moses is talking about. But ultimately, there is one prophet like Moses. And that one prophet like Moses is Jesus himself. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter three, it says, heavens must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. The ultimate prophet is Jesus. The ultimate prophet like Moses is Jesus himself. Only one person could fulfill that role. As a matter of fact, that's why they crucified Jesus because they didn't believe that he was that one person and the religious leaders in their minds went back to this Deuteronomy passage and they said, this guy's trying to act like he's the prophet Moses was talking about. He's not, so they crucified him. The problem was, he was. The one person who would be the prophet just like Moses. Only one person could fulfill that messianic role. Why did the Jewish religious leaders miss it? How could they miss it? They knew where he was gonna be born. They knew what the scripture was about. They knew messianic prophecies. How could they miss it? Because over the years and the centuries, the, the Jewish religious leaders invested themselves in the religious and political power structure instead of the voice of God. And when God finally does show up on the scene, Jesus says in John chapter five, you study the scriptures because you think in those things you have eternal life, but you won't come to me to get life. The thing is, is I'm the one who gives you life. I'm the one prophet like Moses that you need to be listening to, and they wouldn't listen to him. And the interesting part is God prophesied that too, that they would miss it, that they would deny him, that they wouldn't listen to him. These prophecies are important because it's one story about one person who could fulfill these prophecies. But there's one final thing that these fulfilled prophecies give to us. And I think it's probably the most powerful and important. These fulfilled prophecies show us that God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. If he kept his promise to bring the Messiah, he will fulfill New Testament promises too. As a matter of fact, Christmas reminds us to remember that his first coming, to remember his first coming and anticipate his second coming. When you celebrate Christmas this year, you ought to remember God fulfilled his promise to bring a Messiah. God fulfilled his promise to bring a Messiah in the form of a baby. And if he fulfilled his promise to bring him the first time, he will fulfill his promise to bring him back the second time. We can anticipate that God's gonna keep his promises. But beyond those promises, and sometimes people are like, man, it's taken so long. Why is God waiting so long and coming back? And, and the book of Peter even talks about that. God's not slow in keeping his promises. He has a timetable. 
For him, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years, but he has a timetable. He's not slow and he's not faithless. He will keep that promise. And he could come back in the next 30 seconds, which would be perfectly fine with me. He could come back in the next 30 years or he might come back, not come back for the next 30,000 years. I don't know. All I know is, is he has a time frame and he will keep his promise. But listen, even beyond that, he will keep his promises to you. So here's what I know. I know that in this room, there are those of you that think, when is God gonna come through for just fill in the blank? You felt like you've had a promise from the Lord regarding something, or you've been standing on a scripture and you've been saying, Jesus, this is what your word says. When are you gonna come through for me and do that? When are you gonna come through and fulfill your promise to me about whatever? It may be you're believing God for an unbelieving relative, a loved one, somebody who's used to walk with Jesus, now they walked away from their faith and you've been crying out and you feel like the Lord's given you a word about it or you've been standing on scripture and you feel like nothing's happening. In fact, they're getting worse, not better. God will keep his promise. Some of you are waiting for a restored relationship. God, I made this promise to her, I made this promise to him and to you, and maybe he or she's walking away from it, but I'm believing you're gonna restore, I'm standing on your word. When are you gonna come through on your promise? I really felt too that there, there are those in the room that um, there's a change that you've been waiting for. Uh, whether it's a change in job, it's a change in some kind of life situation, there's a change you've been waiting for and you feel like you're just completely stuck. Jesus, you are not coming through, you're not, you're not keeping your promise to me but that, that that change is coming because Jesus is a promise keeper. Or it could be the healing. Jesus, you said by your stripes I'm healed. You suffered, you carried my sicknesses. That's what Isaiah 53 said. Why aren't you carrying this sickness away? I'm waiting for your promise to come through for me. Jesus is a promise keeper. If God kept his promise, years and years and decades and centuries away from the time when he gave the prophecy, if he kept that promise, he will keep his promise to you. Stand with me, will you please? And here's what we're gonna do. I always wanna give you an opportunity to come and agree in prayer here with uh, pastors, elders, those who are ministering, so you all can come at this time. I wanna give you opportunity because here's what I know, between Sunday and Wednesday, you could have had an impossible situation arise. Between Sunday and Wednesday, you may have been feeling great on Sunday, but here we are at Wednesday, and now you feel like you're down. You need to agree with someone in prayer. There are those of you, like I said, you're waiting for God to keep some kind of a promise in your life. I don't care what it is, I don't know what it is, but you know exactly what that promise is. I want you to come and I want you to pray. I want you to agree that God's gonna come through and he's gonna keep his promise for you. We're gonna worship and so forth and all that stuff's gonna happen, but I, I want you to come, I want you to be prayed for, it doesn't matter what the need is, I want you to come and be prayed for, and then I want you just to stand back and worship the promise keeper, worship the ultimate gift giver for what he's gonna do in your life. You come as Pastor Drew and, and the team lead us.